Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful music today. If you turn in your Gospel of Mark uh, to Gospel of Mark chapter 6. This is our fifth sermon from our Mark series that takes us all the way to Easter Sunday. If you've missed one of those, you want to go to firstamarillo.org and you can watch the sermon, you can listen to it, or you can print it out and read it, whatever. We'd like you to get caught up and commit yourself to this journey through the Mark and Gospel. So we're at number five. We have 13 of these. So uh, please catch up and stay with us as we find ourselves in, in Mark chapter 6 today. We usually associate stardom with big cities, New York or Los Angeles, cities with bright lights and big events. Some small towns, however, are really proud of their hometown heroes, are they not? Carrie Underwood, for example, is from a city in Oklahoma with which you are probably not familiar. She, in fact, referenced that little town in the song, I Ain't From Shakona Anymore. And in the song, she talks about being one stoplight and one sonic in the town. And she enjoyed her time there, but she's not from Shakona anymore. Or Steve Carell of The Office fame is from Acton, Massachusetts, population 22,614. Uh, Steve Carell from a, a town of about 20,000 folks. Or let me hit a little closer to home. Uh, I bet some of you are aware of this one. The king of sausage and country music, Jimmy Dean, is from a, a little West Texas town called Plainview. Are you familiar with that town? And this hometown, the, the music marvel, is honored by his own museum at Wayland Baptist University. And then if you go a little further south, there's a, another little one horse, one red light town named Lubbock down there somewhere. And uh, <laughs> Lubbock doesn't want you to forget that Buddy Holly is from there. Uh, that's their hometown hero. I've seen the bronze statue to, to Buddy Holly. The leaders in Lubbock erected a bronze statue in the center of downtown, which depicts their own rock and roll legend. And they depict that with, with pride. Well, that, that's true that, that we usually think about famous people or stardom from big towns and bright lights, but there are some small towns that are awfully pleased with their hometown heroes, but not Nazareth and not Jesus. They weren't proud of their hometown star, this rabbi. In fact, Turn back to Mark 1.28. I want you to see how popular Jesus was becoming. Mark 1.28, and immediately, now remember that's a Mark word, immediately the news about Jesus went out everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. Or, or go down a few verses to verse 45 of chapter 1. 
But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news about to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. No, we're going to see in just a moment that Jesus couldn't get any love from his hometown Nazareth. But it wasn't because he wasn't gaining popularity in the other cities of Galilee. In fact, he had become so popular that he couldn't even go into the cities. He had to stay in the outskirts and let the people come to him. And Mark tells us they did come to him, and they came to him from everywhere. But Jesus could gain no ground in his own hometown. There's a stark contrast he sets up. And just immediately preceding passage, I'll turn over to, to Mark chapter 5, a passage we didn't cover in Mark chapter 5 last time. And these preceding pericopes, these preceding stories, we find that the characters of the story have great faith. And because of the great faith of the characters, Jesus does wondrous things in their midst. In fact, so wondrous that he even raises the dead. Now, this section beginning in Mark 21 and following through the end of Mark is Mark's second sandwich. You remember we studied a, a Mark and sandwich when we began with the bread, the spread, and the bread again. And we, we looked at the first one in Mark last time. And we begin with one story, and then he switches to a second story, and then he comes back to the first story, and the two stories sandwiched together have only one meaning. And the one meaning of these two stories in the second Markin sandwich is because of great faith, Jesus brings great healing. Well, look at chapter 5. In verse 22, this is the, the bread. This is the beginning of the, the Markin sandwich. And one of the synagogue officials named Jairus came up upon seeing him and fell at his feet and earnestly entreated him, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well and live. So here is a synagogue official having faith in the new rabbi, now, normally we'll see in a moment synagogue and Mark and Jesus don't usually go very well together. But in this case, a synagogue official whose daughter is at death's door comes and says, if you'll just touch my daughter, I believe she will be well. The faith of the synagogue official. And all of a sudden, we go from the bread to the spread and have story number two sandwiched with the raising of Jairus' daughter, well, look at, look at verse 28. A woman who had an issue of blood, a, a hemorrhage for 12 years, had spent all of her money on medical care not to get better. She heard that Jesus was in town, and she just wanted to see him. She just wanted to touch him. And look at her faith in verse 28. For she thought, if I just touch his garments, I shall be well. Look at that. 
She didn't feel like she needed to touch Jesus or have Jesus touch her. We've looked earlier how in this gospel Jesus touches to heal people. But she says, if I can just touch the fabric of the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. So story number two. Now back to story number one, Jairus' daughter. Look how it, it plays out. In verse 34, he says to her, the lady, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your affliction. Now back to story number one. While he was still speaking, they came from the house of the synagogue officials saying, your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher anymore? In other words, it's over. She didn't make it. Jesus didn't get to her soon enough. Call it off. Quit hounding him. Know when to give it up, Jairus. It's over. But Jesus, verse 36, overhearing what was being spoken, he said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow with him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And notice, look at verse 41. And taking the child by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which translated means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl rose and began to walk. And they were completely, that word immediately, they were immediately completely astounded. So that, that Mark and Sandwich, Jairus, the synagogue official, has a daughter at death's door. He has faith. He believes if Jesus will but touch. And then we go to the lady with a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. What great faith if I touch the hem of his garment. And Jesus actually says to her, your faith has healed you. Then back to story number one, the daughter's dead and Jairus still believes that Jesus can do something. So as we enter Nazareth, the land of unbelief, we first visit Galilee where there is much, much belief. Well, this section here in chapter 6, 1 through 13, there, there are two major points or two major sections to it. The first section I would entitle Going Home. Number one, going home, that's verses one through six, going home. Now, Jesus, as you know, wanted to proclaim the gospel throughout Galilee. And in the process, he visits his own hometown. Look at verse 6-1. And he came out from there, and he went to his own hometown. Jairus' daughter has just been raised now he leaves there, he comes to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. Now, there are times, we've already seen in Mark, when it says his town, it really is a reference to Capernaum, the base of his ministry. But Capernaum is not in mind here. We are going all the way back. The context tells us to the, the town of his youth to his own hometown. Why, look at back at chapter 1 and verse 24. How do we know he's from Nazareth? 
We will say one thing. The demons always tell the truth in regard to everything Jesus. Do they not? And, and the demons say, the unclean spirit says in 124, what do we have to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? The demons get it right when it comes to Jesus. So Mark's already told us through the voice of a demon both the identity and the place of Jesus. But he's told us earlier than that. Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 9. Chapter 1 and verse 9. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. The demons tell us, but even before that, Jesus comes from Nazareth and Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by, by John. And so, Jesus has come home to Nazareth. And having just seen in the previous chapter what he did amongst the strangers and the other villages of Galilee, we can expect when he gets to Nazareth, he'll really hit a home run. My, how powerful the miracles will be in Nazareth. Jesus, they will be so happy to see their hometown hero come back, will they not? Well, turn back to chapter 3. Verse 21 and 31, I think he gives us a little hint here. 321, and when his own people, that's his mother and his brothers, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. They're saying he's lost his mind. He's lost his senses. So I think that little story where his mother and brothers think that Jesus has lost his mind and they go to claim him. Look at verse 31 of chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers arrived and were standing outside and they sent word to him and they called him. His disciples tell him, your mother and your brothers are here. I think, now back to, to Mark 6, I think that story in chapter 3 sets us up for chapter 6, where not only his family rejects him again, but now the whole town of his childhood rejects the rabbi. He is rejected. Well, I want you to notice something else in chapter 6, verse 1. His disciples followed him. The rabbi comes to his own hometown, and he is accompanied by his students. And Mark does this to set up the next story so that when we see the second half of this part of chapter 6, in that part, he sends out the disciples two by two to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. And when he brings his disciples with him to Nazareth, they will, they will understand that sometimes when you go, you will be received, and sometimes when you go, you will be rejected. Because even Jesus is rejected. Sometimes when you go with the gospel, you will be received, and sometimes you will be rejected. His disciples needed to know what was ahead for them just around the corner. Well, look at verse 2. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, 
where does this man get these things? And what is this wisdom that's been given to him? And, and such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters right here with us? And they took offense at him. Now it was customary for a visiting rabbi to be invited to teach. So he arrives at the synagogue and he's invited to teach. By the way, the, the last time Jesus was in a synagogue, turn back to chapter 3, verse 1, it didn't go so well either. You remember last time he was in a synagogue that he actually healed a man on the Sabbath and look, look what happened in chapter 3, verse 6. And the Pharisees went out immediately. He uses that word over and over again, doesn't he? And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So the last time Jesus taught in a synagogue, the Jews decided he had to die. You see that? And so now back to chapter 6. In chapter 6, he's in a synagogue again. And by the way, this is the last time in Mark's gospel that he'll teach in a synagogue. This is it. Synagogue is not a good thing for Jesus in Mark's gospel. It does not go well. The first time he's in a synagogue, they're ready to kill him. And this time he's teaching and they have all sorts of doubt. In rapid fire succession, the questions begin as Jesus teaches them with such power. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? And what about these miracles performed by his hands? Now, don't we know his mother? Did, wasn't he in the carpenter shop? Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And what about his sisters? They're right here in town with us still. All these questions can be summarized with a single inquiry. Who does this hometown carpenter think he is? Who does the guy who used to fix my plow, how'd he get uppity? Where'd he get this authority and this wisdom and this power? Doesn't he know? Let's remind him that we know who he is. He is from here, and he is nothing but a carpenter. The core of these questions is the Old Testament idea that God grants divine wisdom and power to the one he designates. Listen carefully. Jesus is so familiar to, to them, they don't think he can be remarkable. Jesus is so familiar to them, they don't really think he can be, after all, that remarkable. He is too familiar. Well, in 6-3, they, they take offense. 
They call him a tecton, which is a word for someone who makes their living with their hands. It, it could mean a stonemason, but probably means a carpenter. And in the Palestinian context, it probably was a carpenter, which probably meant he had a variety of skills from crafting plows and yokes to making furniture to preparing the beams and the doorways for houses. And, well, I'm just going to say what they're saying. What they're saying is this. Doesn't Jesus know he's blue-collar? We know he's blue-collar. Doesn't he know who he is? Now, wait a minute. Before we get so offended at their label of carpenter for Jesus, we live in a culture that so judges people by their vocation. There is no other culture like the American culture that judges people based on how they draw their paycheck. Our first two questions when we meet anybody are these, in this order, what is your name and what do you do? What is your name and what do you do? Where did we ever get the idea that if we know what someone does, we can estimate who they are? There's a lot of arrogance in that. If I can determine if you're a lawyer or a laborer, maybe I can put you in a box, is what we're saying. That is a very skewed perspective when evaluating someone. There, there might very well be those who know more who be, are in a vocation that you would never even imagine. I was discussing C.S. Lewis with one of our custodians two weeks ago. Don't ever imagine in your mind that when you know what someone does, how they earn their bread, that you've defined them. Never define someone by any honorable profession they do to make a living. I will say our culture is changing. My generation was the what's your name and what do you do. The generation below might ask something more interesting like what are you reading? What's your passion? Those are much better questions. In, in fact, if you look at surveys, a, a Gallup survey, the most trusted vocation of any vocation, a recent, recent Gallup survey is a nurse. The lowest trusted vocation is a congressman or a lobbyist of a congressman. The highest ranked vocation that works with one's hands is an auto mechanic, which ranks right above a banker, by the way, above a banker in our culture. So things are changing. Remember what God said to Samuel I do not see people as you see them. You look at the outside. You ask, what do you do? And I look at the heart, right? Then then they ask, isn't this the son of Mary? Look at verse 3. The son of Mary. Now, why the son of Mary? There there are four different theories, and I'll tell you which one I think, and, and you can pick your own. Some people think that he's called son of Mary. Now, normally you would refer to someone by their father's name. He should be called son of Joseph in ordinary conversation. Now, why did they switch, the crowd switch, 
and or Mark switch to son of Mary. Number one, maybe it's the emphasis on the virgin birth. He's not really the son of Joseph, you see. So Mark is reminding us through the, the words of his listeners of the, the virgin birth. Secondly, it, it might mean that it, it actually might be, uh, since this is coming from a hard crowd who doesn't like Jesus, it may be sort of a, we know who his mother is, but we don't even know who his father is. It, it might be disdain. It might be the opposite. Or thirdly, it may be that Mark never mentions Joseph, and he's not interested in Joseph, and he's not going to mention Joseph again. He just doesn't mention Joseph. That, that, that might be what it comes from. Or fourthly, and I think most likely, that Joseph is already dead. And Mary is a widow, and so he's defined. Joseph isn't mentioned in Mark because Joseph doesn't exist. He's dead. Isn't this the son of Mary? And then we have this list of the siblings of our Savior, James and Joseph, or Joseph, whatever your translation might call it, and Judas and Simeon. And there's only two that are mentioned elsewhere, Jacob or James, or Jude or Judas are mentioned elsewhere in the Scripture, but the others are only mentioned here. And then don't you love that reference to his sisters? They're not named and they're not numbered, and I hate that. Could you imagine if we knew the, sister, the names of the sisters of Jesus, every little girl in town would be named. Uh, it'd be, if it was Rachel, there'd be a bunch of Rachels running around, right? We, we'd do the Mary thing big, and if we knew the names of these little girls, those would be some very popular names, but we don't know those names, and so we were robbed of naming our daughters by the names of the sisters of Jesus. Put the prophet in his place. It's strong language. They take offense to him. That means they reject the man and his message. 6-4. In 6-4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Reference back to three where his own family rejects him. He's recalling the old saying in 6-4, and, and really there was more to it than that. The other side of that old proverb is, and a physician cannot heal those in his own family. A prophet is not without honor except in his own household, and a physician cannot heal those that know him. Jesus is rejected, he has no honor, and he does not heal them. By saying part of the old Saul, Jesus expects us to recall the whole thing. And the whole thing fits this context. It is setting us up for the fact that at the end of this gospel, not only Nazareth, but all of Israel reject him and take offense at him. And he will be what? Crucified. You see? Foreshadowing the crucifixion by the rejection of the one town, which becomes the whole nation at the end of the story. Then 5 and 6, he tells us he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Jairus had faith. The woman with the hemorrhage had faith. Jairus had faith even when his daughter was dead. The woman had faith even when she couldn't touch him, but just his garment. And now Jesus marvels at their unbelief, and he doesn't heal many. Now, Mark sets, up, sets that up in contrast to the other villages in chapter 1 where it says they brought all the sick 
and all the demon possessed. And he healed them all. But not here. Now, he's not telling you that Jesus didn't have the power to do it. He's telling you by their unbelief. They were limited in the grace gifts of God that they could receive. By their unbelief, they limited the grace gifts of God that they could receive. Now, second big section, 7 through 13, sending them out. Sending them out. Look at 7. And he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs, and he was giving them authority over unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should Take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money, and their belt. They are to wear sandals. And he added, don't take two tunics. Don't take a change of clothes. And he said, then wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the town. And any place that does not receive you, you shall go out from there. Shake off the dust from your soles of your feet for a testimony against them. They went out and preached that men should repent, and they were casting out many demons and anointing all many sick people and healing them, sending them out two by two. Now, throughout Scripture, from Deuteronomy to 1 Timothy, we had this emphasis on it takes two witnesses. So no surprise, Jesus sends out the disciples two by two. And notice, they preach repentance just like Jesus I want you to notice that in his ministry, Jesus invested himself not with the masses, but with the 12. If you really want to change a culture, don't invest in the masses, invest in the few. Leadership expert Aubrey Malfers and Will Mancini know that leadership development is the core of Jesus' ministry, and what Jesus did for three years was pour himself into the 12 that they could carry forth the mission when he was he was gone all good leaders invest themselves and a handful around them to keep it going verses 8 and 9 he tells them don't take anything you can take a, a staff and sandals, a staff, Moses' staff, the staff of the 12 tribes, a, a prophet staff. There's power image there. They take the staff like Moses or a prophet. But like a prophet's rejected, like Jesus re- rejected in Nazareth, they must be ready for some rejection as well. And if you go to a house and they treat you well, don't Trade up to a better accommodations. If someone treats you with grace, you stay in that same, same house the whole time you're in that village till you move to the next village. But if anyone does not, then you take off your shoes and you shake off the dust. There's something offensive when someone takes off their shoes. And, do you see how offended they got? Get your shoes back on. We're 2,000 years later, and people still don't want you to shake your shoes at them. I didn't prompt one of them. They did not like that. I'm done with you. When Jews would travel to unholy soul, when exiting the unholy city, they would beat off the dust. Don't take contamination with you. And when a city did not receive the gospel... They were an unholy city, and the disciples were to shake off the dust as if to say, you had your chance, and I'm not responsible for your rejection of the good news and the call 
to repentance. Well, earlier Jesus had told them that they would preach and cast out demons, and oddly enough, up until now in this gospel, their only job was being with Jesus. They didn't do much. He invested himself in in them, and they watched him, and he carried them in, three of them, when he raised Jairus' daughter, and he taught them and spent private time with them because the time was coming when he was not, and they were, and he had to get them ready. And like Jesus, they preached repentance. Like Jesus, they cast out demons. And like Jesus, they healed the sick, anointing with oil, a reference also mentioned in James about oil and healing and anointing. They are now the sent ones. Not one man with a message, but six preaching teams going with a call to repentance, the casting out demons, and the healing. Now, here's what scares me to death about this story. I grew up in Nazareth. I'm way familiar with Jesus. I mean, I was, I was with him in Sunday school when I was two. I think I've got him figured out. I mean, I've been with him all my life. He's from my hometown. I grew up in his house. I am so familiar with him that like an inhabitant of Nazareth, I can subconsciously say, I know you are. I got you figured out. Been studying it for years. Raising the dead, casting out the demons. Read it all. No big deal. I'm very comfortable with who you are. That's dangerous. Have you ever seen someone who didn't grow up in the faith, who catches the faith? She can teach herself in about three years everything you learned in 30. Because she didn't grow up with him. And she's hungry. And she's thirsty. And she's amazed. She's overwhelmed. She doesn't try to manage him or control him or put him in a box or set limits on what he can do. What she says is, wow, give me more. I hereby revoke my citizenship to Nazareth. I don't want to be there from any, I don't want to be from there anymore. I want to be amazed and impressed and overwhelmed and astonished when Jesus comes walking my way. Let us pray. Oh God, forgive us for being too familiar of knowing nothing and thinking we know everything. Father, maybe there's some watching by way of television or some in this room that this would be her day, this would be his day to say, I want to hear Jesus again for the first time. 
I want to hear the proclamation that I'm a sinner and I must repent. And the call is to be astonished because with him the kingdom is here. Maybe there are some who understand it for the first time. Father, may we not respond in such a way as God will shake his sandals at us. But may we respond like the villages with an open heart. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.